1: This is Phil. Welcome to Weird Studies. Dedicated listeners will have heard JF and me mention Graham Larkin, whom I nominate as the official Weird Studies spirit animal. I met Graham 17 years ago when we were both postdoctoral fellows at Stanford University. One of our first conversations was about Marshall McLuhan, who I'd never read. I told Graham that I heard he was a Timothy Leary kind of figure a showboating bullshitter who was big in the 60s and whose reputation declined once people weren't dropping quite so much acid. Graham's eyes bulged, and he told me in no uncertain terms that I had to read him, starting with understanding media, which I did. I spent much of fall 2003 curled up in Green Library, feeling the book cutting new paths in my mind. It was like discovering a map to a part of the world that had somehow remained undiscovered. I'm not only talking about the subject matter, which was interesting enough. It was something else, something I didn't even have words for yet. As it turns out, the words I was looking for were weird studies. And I can credit Graham not only for introducing JF and me in 2015, but also for setting my feet on the path I have walked ever since I finished graduate school. Understanding Media is McLuhan's most influential and probably greatest work. Published in 1964, it became an unlikely bestseller among counterculture intellectuals like Chester Anderson, a sci fi writer and beat poet turned hippie who mused on McLuhan's masterwork in a 1967 issue of the legendary San Francisco Oracle. It's a dated piece, obviously, but I like it because it captures something about McLuhan's work that is not dated at all. That is, it's prophecy in the true meaning of the word just as our recent guest B.W. Powell said it is. So here's the quote. Marshall McLuhan makes no sense at all, not as I was taught to define sense in my inadequately cynical youth. He's plainly no Aquinas, and yet somehow he embarrassingly manages to explain to perfection an overwhelming array of things that used to make even less sense than he does and were somewhat threatening as well. Things like pop, op, and camp, the psychedelic revolution, the pot and acid explosion, the Hate ashbury community, and especially what we'll keep on calling rock and roll until we can find some name more appropriate for it. Not that McLuhan mentions any of these things. He simply gives the clues. Synthesis and synesthesia non-typographic, non-linear, basically mosaic and mythic modes of participation, involvement of the whole sensorium, roles instead of jobs, participation in depth, extended awareness, preoccupation with textures, with tactility, with multi-sensory experiences. Put them all together and you've got a weekend on Hate Street. The electronic extension of the central nervous system, the evolutionary storm that's happening right now, which is having, slowly, the exact same effect on the whole world as acid has had on us, makes everything make more sense, and McLuhan taught us how to see it. He doesn't have to make sense. End quote. And you know what else doesn't have to make sense? The weird studies Patreon is what, assholes? Oh, sorry. I keep saying stuff like that. This week, I'm not really going to plug the Weird Studies Patreon. I just want to thank our patrons, most of whom have stuck with us, even in a time of great economic anxiety, and some of whom have even joined up since the lockdown. I'd like to think that that's a testament to the quality of the writing and bonus shows JF and I are putting out for them, but I think it's really more that our listeners are the kinds of people for whom art and thinking about art is as important as booze, weed, and porn, which, according to Forbes, are all things we're consuming at record rates in quarantine. Yeah, that's something I'm reading about. So thank you, patrons. Some of you have been so kind as to tell us that this podcast is helping keep you sane. Well, it goes both ways. You guys are keeping me sane, too. All right, on with the show.
0: Daughters are having a blast. They're getting along better than ever. They have all these fucking projects. They're redecorating the house. Wow. Yeah, they're, they're, you know,
1: painting, doing all kinds of things. This is an example of something I texted you earlier. I went for a long walk. I was walking through the largely deserted streets of my neighborhood and campus, and it felt so poetic. Yeah. You know, there was a kind of a poetry in the air. The very air molecules were breathing poetry. And you could say, well, it's all in your head. You were bored, sitting around at home, went for a walk, and you were primed to respond to the smallest of things, which, yeah, maybe. But my thought on the walk was that, you know how, with people out of the streets, we're beginning to see animals kind of beginning to colonize the streets. Like yeah. there's a some funny photos from, I think, whales maybe. Yeah, these goats. Yeah. These, <laughs> yeah, these, these mountain goats coming down from the hills and occupying the streets. I feel like something similar happens, but like, you know, our busyness, the, you know, the world we live in is a world made by those fucking planners and schedulers and systematizers. You know, it's their world. Yeah. People like you and me are just living in it. Um, that kind of busyness is kryptonite to poetry. And when I'm saying poetry, I'm not just talking about you know words on the page. I'm talking about the, the poetic potential inherent in all things. Like when we talk about the aesthetic universe, it's sort of like the- uh, The poetic
0: um, universe, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we talked about this in our show on beauty, how the modern world is understandable as a vast conspiracy against beauty. Mm-hmm. And it's that world of rational administration that chases away beauty, just like human habitation chases away all the animals. And when all of that busyness is driven indoors, the poetry, like the animals, get to to come out of hiding. Beauty begins to emerge from the groves where it's been hiding out. And I felt this very strongly, and all this is to say, Your girls, like, redecorating the place and making it beautiful and just, like, becoming more creative, that's a perfect example. Once the kid's lives have not been colonized by these fucking educators, they can actually have a chance of living poetically.
0: Yeah, I was uh, just reminded of uh, part two of our Stalker episode where we talked about Chernobyl and the photos of Chernobyl and of a deserted world. And I was like Mm. really into the idea of this deserted world as what we're quietly yearning for. I think we kind of all see it now. It's funny because for uh, the project that I'm, well, it's now it's on hold, but the project I was working on before all this happened was a documentary about unclaimed bodies. And, you know, whenever you do a documentary and you're in several, you're shooting in several different locations and cities, you want to create establishing shots to show The different cities. So when you move from a place to another, you get a shot of the city. You get some shot that gives you a sense of place and all that. And I really put a premium on those, that part of a of the shoot. And uh, for this one, I wanted empty streets. I wanted the cities to look deserted because it had to do with the unclaimed bodies and death and all this other stuff we're exploring in the documentary. And we're like, well, we were trying to do it, but it was impossible to find times where that would happen unless we were shooting at like four in the morning every day, which was, it would be dark and all that. So now the streets are exactly what I was trying to get. Um, We can go out at any time of day now and get those shots of deserted cities. So, so, so weird that I was trying to find ways of shooting these shots, of getting these images and then this happens and now all I'll have to do is send out my camera guy and he can just shoot down his street and it's going to be that's exactly awesome. that. So, yeah, yeah. Poetry. Yeah. It's not just the fact that animals are coming back that's nice, that's beauty. It's that the structures, the ugly structures themselves become beautiful. The overpasses, yeah. a deserted overpass is a thing of beauty. Uh, a deserted brutalist building can be extremely beautiful, especially when it's, true. it's being reclaimed by plant life and animal life. There's something about mm. a, a society falling apart that's particularly nice. But maybe that's just the decadent in me <laughs> that likes that. But I I, well, I, I find the beauties objectively there. It's just a matter of seeing it.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the beauty of that seeps out of every pore of Dalgren, right? Yeah. Um, what's the novelist's name? Um, I'm, Samuel, no, I'm Delaney. Samuel, Samuel Delaney. Samuel Delaney. Yeah. yeah. He wrote a perfect, very strange, very weird novel about the situation that we're in. Um, if it wasn't such a challenging read and so bloody long, I would suggest we do it for a show, but I don't have time to pick my nose right now, much less read Dahlgren. so oh yeah. well. But I did have time to read one chapter of Understanding Media.
0: Yeah, and so did I. Yeah. So that's yeah. nice. <laughs> so that's what we're doing today. We're
1: going to talk well, about...
0: we. The agreement was not to talk about, specifically about that text,
1: but to talk about just the phrase, the medium is the message, correct? Exactly. And the first chapter of Understanding Media is titled, The Medium is the Message, and deals more with that phrase than any other part of that book does. But yeah. From another point of view, the medium is the message sums up everything that McLuhan was about. And so it's a phrase that's loaded with a lot of implication. And so my original idea was, let's talk about the phrase, let's treat it as a koan. I actually once on this show referred to the medium is the message as a koan. And for those that don't know what koans are, a koan is... A kind of a teaching tool, I say kind of because it's a very particular kind of teaching in the Zen tradition and particularly in the Rinzai Zen tradition. Koan means case, like public case, as in a a law case. They're stories, they're old stories, many of them from medieval China of monks having conversations about things and saying puzzling, zeny phrases to each other. And the stories, contrary to popular belief, aren't intended to make no sense. They're not nonsense. Um, Some people think that the point of Cohen's study is to engage your mind in a fruitless quest to understand the meaning of a meaningless phrase. But that's not it. A Cohen is very meaningful, but its meaning can't be understood as it were frontally. It's not susceptible to a frontal assault. You have to find evasive, circuitous, kind of sideways or crab-wise movements towards the meaning of a koan. But uh, the reason I call the medium is the message, just that phrase, a koan, It's because it's that kind of a phrase. It's a phrase that can teach you if you are willing to meditate on it for a good long time and allow its evident meanings to dissolve into its deeper, more latent meanings. It occurred to me we would have a good conversation just trying to unpack that one phrase. And by no means do we have to remain restricted to just that one chapter of understanding media.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about it since um, you came up with that idea. I mean, there's a sense in which it's not a koan at all. It's actually a quite straightforward thing that actually, because of McLuhan's penetration of the culture, then how far he's, that today is kind of more self-evident than ever, especially with social media, which is, wouldn't have been called media at all if McLuhan hadn't had this pervasive influence. Like a a medium was a a technology before, but social media is a type of software, but we understand that it is a medium because it transforms the way the internet functions. So it's like, in a sense, you could say that the content of social media, because McLuhan, one of McLuhan's insights is that the content of each medium is another medium that's been obsolesced or changed in some substantial way by the new medium. So for instance, uh, the medium of... of, uh, of uh, I'm trying to find the, the best example. Um, like as you'd say, you say the media, the, the content of cinema, it was theater. That's the one of them.
1: Right. Um, uh, and then the content of television is is film.
0: Yeah, exactly. You could say that while the content of social media is the internet, it's the f- actual medium yeah. that that is now inside social media. And social yeah. media is not a localizable kind of technology. It exists within the internet in a way, but in another way, it contains it. Like the Overlook yeah. Hotel contains the mountains that surround it in a weird way. I don't know, but we can get into that. Well,
1: yeah, that's actually kind of an abstract way into the the phrase. That already, I think, is a well, kind of a- Yeah,
0: but that's not where I was going. I was just going oh, okay. to the, the self-evident way in which the medium determines how one operates in the world much more than the content of the medium. I think that that's self-evident right. today. I think it's self-evident that- Social media doesn 't matter what you 're communicating on social media. Social media itself is creating all this polarization absolutely siloing and any thinking person will understand this immediately that 's all the more yeah. reason to look at the phrase because the phrase has other implications and other other avenues of sense that actually allow us to deepen and kind of reverse some of the more superficial, I think, receptions of the of the concept. So mm-hmm. there's a way in which I think medium is a message is the, is the truest thing you could say. And there's another way in which I think it's it's certainly something that needs more investigation and discussion before we can understand what the hell is it's saying. So all the more reason to discuss it. Mm. Um yeah. right. So I wrote up a whole list of um, equivalencies that I think one could derive from the medium as a message. I wrote the medium is the message. Context is text. Rhetoric is dialectic. Expression is communication. Style is substance. Archetype is type. Group is individual. Becoming is being. So like, I mean, we could spend an episode on every one of those, but to me, it's like Medium is a message inscribes itself in a philosophical current of thought that, that McLuhan was a key part of, but McLuhan is not alone in there. It's actually part of a, a movement within philosophy and cultural theory that I think we could discuss from various vantage points and angles.
1: That's good. That, that sets the agenda. Um, as a thick end of the wedge, man, I see you've already jumped all the way out to the more abstract level of meaning, where I was hoping we would get to, and we're just hitting it. So... You were saying that from one point of view, the meaning of the medium is the message is very obvious and uh, not koan-like at all. And I think that that's... From from one point of view, yeah. And I think that's quite true. For me, the blatant rather than latent meaning of the phrase is basically that we need to attend to the effects that a medium has on human affairs rather than be distracted by the message of its contents. And there's a great quote in that chapter, that first chapter of Understanding Media, where McLuhan writes, the content of a medium is like the juicy piece of meat carried by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. Uh, And actually in a different piece, by the way, anybody at home who wants a succinct and reasonably clear introduction to McLuhan sought my go-to standard advice is always to read the Playboy interview. And there's a great line in it where he says, the content or message of any particular medium has about as much importance as the stenciling on the casing of an atomic bomb. Among other things, McLuhan is a great aphorist, and that's one of his great aphorisms. And it renders that first order meaning of the medium is the message really clear that you get distracted by the content and it's easy to overlook what the medium is doing and that the real message is not the content, it's what the medium is doing. It's a fax on our lives. And you gave a perfect example, you know, social media, whether somebody is retweeting this article or that article or sharing a photo of their kids on Facebook or whatever, um, is a matter of indifference, just like the stenciling on the case of the atomic bomb. The bomb in this case is, as you say, the way social media has led to increased ideological siloing, to polarization, to the spreading of malicious disinformation and so on. Um, As you say, now any thinking person would have to immediately grant the justice of McLuhan's remarks. And Something that's really easy to forget if you're reading Understanding Media, you know, which is McLuhan's kind of magnum opus, I guess, is how universally people did not understand media that way when he wrote mm-hmm. it. You know, when I've, yeah. sometimes when I teach McLuhan, like on occasion I've had students read The Medium is the Massage. Notice a slightly different word, massage, not message. A short book in the kind of experimental paperback genre, where all kinds of crazy mashups of text and image and alternative ways of formatting on the page are experimented with. Um, All the visual experimentation was by a guy named Quentin Fiore, uh, who did a number of these books back in the sixties uh, where that kind of book enjoyed a brief fog. But, uh, in the medium is the massage. You know, I remember one class in particular reading that book and we were talking about it and they were impressed at how perceptive McLuhan was about the media world that they've grown up in. And then I remember blowing their fucking minds by pointing out that the book was published in 1968 Yeah. They couldn't believe it. There's like, and of course, nobody ever checks a copyright date, but it's like, yeah, 1968. And so like when he wrote this, there was almost no context for the stuff he was saying. And so people were engaging with things like advertising or TV entirely on the level of whether they thought it was like good programming or bad programming and good taste or bad taste or whatever. And McLuhan, just by doing something that now is so intuitively obvious to us, as insisting that you have to look past the distractions that you know we have to ignore the juicy steak that is distracting our mind. Almost none of McLuhan's critics were able to do that. Reading McLuhan reception, you're just, I, I, I at least find myself smacking my head over and over again. Like how could these people have been so thick as to simply not understand this really obvious thing McLuhan was trying to tell them. But I guess, you know, this is where historical context becomes difficult to reconstruct. It was not obvious in the 1960s.
0: It was the background. And, you know, Graham Harman describes McLuhan and Heidegger as the two great thinkers of the background of the 20th century. Mm, Yeah. Um, And these are thinkers who realize that the most important thing wasn't what was right in front of our faces. I mean, this is literally the case when you talk about Heidegger and his reversal of Husserl. Because Husserl was obsessed with what's right in front of us, the phenomenology. And Heidegger was like, well, no, in order for you to see anything, to have something in front of you, like in terms of your in, in your consciousness, all these other things have to be outside your consciousness, have to be there. Like in order to stand and look at a work of art and receive the presence of the work of art, you need to have a fucking floor Right. that's there and, and you're a not wall thinking for about the, And a and wall, wall for the painting
1: yeah. to be hanging on and yeah, all the Exactly. Rest of it, and
0: yeah. all that he's like all that stuff needs to be there. You're not conscious of it, but it's even more important than the thing because it's the condition, the sine qua non of the thing appearing. Yeah. Harman's fond of linking Heidegger and McLuhan in this way, and McLuhan's doing the same thing. He's drawing our attention not to the foreground, to what's being advertised, but to the form of the advertisement itself and of the effect of advertising on society, which people weren't aware of until it was too late. And then you yeah. look around, everything has changed, and you're like, what the fuck? What's going on? Where's our world going? Oh, we need to advertise you know anti we need to like like adbusters. we need to advertise against advertising yeah <laughs> but that's <laughs> mccloon would be like well, no like you can't that's the thing it's the form itself it's the medium itself that's changing everything yes which is not to say that content is unimportant i think there's a way of reading McCLuhan which is like i think that playboy um quote is illuminating because it's making his point at the same time if you, as an individual, you want to talk about thin end, I mean, if, if you receive an email, the content of the email is much more important to you in the moment than the for, the, the medium of emailing. Yeah, so if you want to talk of like thin end experience, content remains important, but it's just because... It's what's outside of our consciousness, what we're not aware of. And and McLuhan often uses the word, the unwary for people who aren't aware of the background, Yeah, the unwary. And for those, the people who are wary, according to McLuhan are the artists. And he says, the yeah, artists are the ones who right. are aware of the background. And yeah. in that sense, Harmon makes a, a link between uh, McLuhan, Heidegger, and also Clement Greenberg, who is really the, uh, the critic of the background in art, who drew attention to, the, to how painting was being deployed and how it was being conceived pre-consciously by society. And that's more important than what painter X is is actually putting on the canvas. It's the, the medium is more important than the
1: content. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, I was just thinking about how, like, uh, in a recent Patreon extra, we talk about absinthe and... I think we maybe talk about some other drugs as well, but I think it's mostly absinthe. You know, that interest in thinking about the character of different substances, what makes, you know, alcohol different from cannabis, for example, or makes either of them different from cocaine or whatever, Um or what, what makes, we we were talking about different, like absinthe versus red wine. Right, we were right, right. Deals, we're yeah, we're yeah. drawing narrower distinctions, but that's a, a a particular example of a conversation you and I have had both on and off mic, which is the different, almost like, uh, you know, to do our usual magical thinking thing of personifying. what What is the little fairy or sprite or entity that lives in this particular substance? And by the way, if that style of thinking on that topic interests you, Dale Pendles. Pharmacopoeia is a wonderful multi-volume work on that subject. Anyway, one thing that cannabis has that makes it different from, say, alcohol is, now that you mention it, it is very much a drug about the background. Because you were just talking a moment ago about, uh, like, you get an email you're going to be much more taken up by the message of the email than the mere fact of email and how email has transformed the scale of our lives and so on. And I was sitting there thinking, but that is exactly the kind of thought you have when you're high. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Whether it's uh, cannabis or maybe another psychedelic, psychedelics mm. are background drugs for sure. Mm. But they can become foreground drugs too. But I think cannabis in particular, I agree with you, that there's something about it that it just kind of relaxes you. It relaxes your gaze so that the background comes, comes forward. Yeah. And you're much more aware of context. Like you're with a lot of people and you're the only one who's stoned. You start to get a little paranoid. Right. Paranoia. Paranoia is the illness of the person who's too aware of the, who's aware of the, of the background. That's Right. Right. Because everything that's happening, every kind of specifiable event within a narrative, clear, conscious kind of like time frame, everything that's happening is seen in light of the context, which makes it look contingent and somehow artificial because the context is determining everything. And it's like you get a little paranoid about yeah. how everything's be. you're being, you're like a puppet, right? So that, that paranoid feeling that many cannabis users will be familiar with, a very McLuhan-esque uh, feeling, I think. Yeah. It's like becoming overly aware of that which normally one is blessedly unaware of uh, for all kinds of good reasons, but... The negative effects now can be seen in all kinds of ways. I mean, we could talk about the pandemic in this context too. You know, like when you're not aware of what's going on behind the scenes, well, then you have no way of uh, the word he uses is you have no control and you have no no awareness of what's coming next. One of the things I love about McLuhan is the nonlinearity of his concept of history. Hmm. Anything could come back. For McLuhan, it's perfectly possible that in 100 years, horses are more popular than cars. It's it's perfectly possible. The way we conceive of the future is already kind of part of our blindness, of our narcissism, as he says. Yeah. Uh, Our trance state. We're so obsessed with these particular media that we can only imagine them existing and we can only imagine them developing on and on, whereas in fact, they are, even as we do that, those media are obsolescing themselves, overheating, and creating a reversal where some completely new way of
1: seeing things will emerge. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. And this is one of the ways in which I think McLuhan connects with students, like at least in my experience. I'd said this before, too, on our Patreon extra where we talk a bit about McLuhan, that McLuhan is the favorite sort of theoretical or philosophical thinker that my students, who are mostly musicians and very practical people, you know, musicians are very practical kind of artists. They're almost like the engineers of the art world or classical musicians or jazz musicians for that matter, because they are solving problems, you know? right? So they are impatient with Things they see as gassy and vague and unreal, if it seems like just intellection for its own sake, just in abstractio of any concrete real world manifestation, they have no patience for it. But McLuhan, as hard as he can be to read, as non-linear as he is, and as how and as challenging as his non-linearity can be to even very sophisticated readers, they like McLuhan because he's saying things that just resonate with their experience and reversal the idea that anything when pushed to its furthest limits of capacity or potentiality will reverse into the opposite of what it is that logic of reversal kids love that because they see it all the time the example that my class once came up with one time we were talking about McLuhan this is a a class on music since 1960 that I teach regularly uh, we were thinking about recordings, sound recordings. So I signed some things on sound recording. I think something by Brian Eno, who is a very interesting thinker on sound recording, as you can imagine. And we were talking about what are the things that happen when sound recording is introduced in the world. And I used the four vectors or the four aspects of McLuhan's tetrad of media effects. So at the end of his yeah, life- the four laws. Yeah, the four laws of media. So uh, quick insert here. At the end of his life, Marshall McLuhan and his eldest son, I think eldest son, his son, Eric, Eric McLuhan, who was a notable academic in his own right and somebody who really kind of upheld and continued his father's legacy, they collaborated towards the end of McLuhan's life on- a book that was published posthumously as The Laws of Media. And I was just reading the introduction to it, Eric McLuhan's introduction to it, and he explains the genesis of it as saying, well, you know, my dad always wanted to revise understanding media and make it more scientific. And so mm-hmm. he wanted to figure out laws, things that would be always true and that would be testable and falsifiable, falsifiable, yeah, that's the key thing, and he so want, he didn't want to go the way of Freud and all that, right? yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. so Eric McLuhan explains he's like, you know he and his dad went through understanding media and realized that there were four fundamental patterns that they didn't really flag in understanding media, but they, they realized these patterns are always present in every conversation McLuhan ever had about any medium. And he said, it's only four. They spent years looking for a fifth. They never found a fifth. There's just four. And so those four laws are the things that media can do. They can obsolesce something. They can retrieve something, like bring something back from the past. They can... Um, Enhance enhance something and they can reverse into something. Yeah. And so getting back to the idea of reversals, I was saying, okay, so let's put sound recording in the center of this tetrad and try and think creatively. What does it obsolesce? What does it enhance? What does it, um, I can never remember all four, fuck. Uh, Retrieve, yeah. reverse. Retrieve and reverse, yeah. Right. And and the most interesting thing they came up with is that recorded sound reverses into live music. Mm-hmm. I might've said this on the show some other time, or maybe on a Patreon extra, but like you think about it, music is for all intents and purposes free at this point. And as the unit cost of music has gone down, like music recording, a Spotify account costs, what, 10 bucks a month or something and you have for all intents and purposes, all music at your disposal. There's nothing special about it anymore. But what is special is liveness. Anybody can share a file of a, Sound recording that has been released, but only a small number of people can show up at the unique spatio temporal coordinates of a live show. And economically speaking, musicians these days are not making any money from their recordings, they're using recordings as promotional tools you know, promotional tools for promoting their live shows. Yeah, and so you can see how. As the medium of recorded sound is pushed to its furthest extent, its furthest limits of possibility, the point at which sound recording becomes entirely disembodied, you know, the severing of sound and all from pervasive. Yeah, and all pervasive. Ubiquitous, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. you no longer even have a material thing like a record or a cassette tape. You just have, you know, a packet of information. Right. Um, And at the point of this kind of etherealization of music or music just vanishing from social existence, it reverses into its opposite. And my kids could see this really clearly and they were like, oh yeah, he's right. You you were talking about retrieval. Um, The fact that... Under the circumstances in which all music is just something that plays out of your phone, all of a sudden, LPs, vinyl, makes a huge comeback. People aren't buying CDs, they're buying vinyl and even buying cassette tapes, for God's sakes. I mean, I could see why you'd want to listen to vinyl, but cassettes, but whatever. It just shows how the condition of recorded sound when it reaches a certain level, begins to retrieve something that we're like, oh, I thought that was dead and buried.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, or another example is like when Edward Snowden was dropping all those bombs, about stuff from the NSA, and suddenly security institutions around the world were shitting their pants. Apparently in Russia, the whatever the... You know the secret apparat. There is called I forget what. Started buying up typewriters from all around the world because you know what's really secure from hackers? Paper.
0: Oh, that's that's back. I heard espionage. It's like de- uh, what do you call them? Dead drops. Is that what they're called? Um, dead letter drops. Dead letter drops. All that stuff is back because yeah, it's the safest way to. And nobody yeah.
1: nobody's looking there. You know. Yeah. All of which is to say, as abstract as McLuhan can seem, he's actually talking about some very real, very empirically verifiable things in the world. But
0: yeah, the laws explain, maybe they explain too much in a certain sense. And they, they ultimately end up uh, in the same realm as like Jungian psychology end up. Like they're just, it's bas- what he's giving us with laws of media is basically a mythical pattern of an antiodromia. And so it's hard to see how even that... I, I, cause I read that introduction by Eric McLuhan. I found it funny because it seems to me like they're the furthest thing from scientific and laws of media. I know. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. And, uh, and yet they are the closest to like truth because all of a sudden McLuhan resonates with all the ancient, you know, and the, the, all these spiritual traditions and you can see these kind of archetypal patterns in his thinking. And these things don't, they're not falsifiable, but they are, uh, they're, they're still true.
1: <laughs> they're still true. Well, you, you know what kind of theory it is. It's this is magical theory. Absolutely. You know, if you, yeah. I mean, Lionel Snell has an excellent chapter on magical theory and what makes a magical theory in his masterful book *Sasatbami*. Well, actually, McLuhan would say that they are cool rather than hot. Yeah. That they invite participation. And the idea with the magical theory is that you try to see how you can make it work in the world that you live in, rather than trying to find out how you can prove it to be wrong, how you can find the limit cases, the places that it doesn't work. Right. Um, it's instead of a critical method, you're using basically a charitable method.
0: Yeah, it works until it doesn't. And you don't need to get rid of the theory until it stops working for you, right? Because it's it's a tool. And, and again, right. magical thinking, I mean, the medium is the message is almost the kind of, it should be, I'm sure if we were to dig, we'd find a version of the Emerald Tablet by Hermes Trismegistus, which at the very end would have an added adage, the medium is the message, because it's, yeah. in a way it's kind of the fundamental law of magic, is that, yes. is that the message, uh, what something means is not separable from the way it instantiates itself in the world, that those things are completely connected and you can't separate the two. Um, Absolutely. I was thinking, too, of the medium is the message in terms of McLuhan's uh, religious beliefs, because McLuhan, of course, was a daily communicant. He was as Catholic as you could possibly get. He would go to the St. Michael's uh, College Church. I can't remember. I guess it's called St. Michael's Parish in Toronto every fucking day. And he uh, was very, very religious. And yet he's seen as this kind of like cool, like playboy interview kind of guy. Um, Very secular in the way he writes. Um, But... When you think about the medium is the message in terms of a kind of Christological concept, well, then it's obvious what it is. Like the whole thing about Christ's incarnation is the medium is the message. Logos, bec- the word becomes flesh.
1: It, oh, it, it's like, shit. You just blew my mind. It's that. Oh my God. I never thought of that. It's that the life of Christ is the
0: message, is God, right? You can't separate those two things anymore. Incarnation is oh, divinization. Man. To exist in the material world is to be spiritual. So I don't know. I'd be interested to know if anybody else has done work on... I mean, anybody else, like I have, but as if anybody has done work on the Christological or the Christology of McLuhan's theory... But to me, as cool and and new as it feels, as fresh as his theories felt in the 60s and as fresh as they still feel now and as relevant to our particular time, I think there's something ancient about it. There's something ageless about it. There's something that goes way back about the way that he explores these ideas. And um, and I think it's cool to think of them in terms of magical theory, I think.
1: It's uh, from a book by a guy named Jonathan Stern, who I think teaches at McGill. He's a media studies scholar who is focused particularly on recorded sound. And in his first big work, The Audible Past, he sets up McLuhan kind of to bury him and says... Exactly what you just said, like he's a very intelligent, very responsive reader. And unlike many people who read McLuhan without ever suspecting how much his status as a daily communicant lay at the heart of his project, Stern is quite aware of this, but he gives that as a reason for us to be suspicious of McLuhan Mm. because he sees, I think quite accurately that ultimately there's something larger at play in McLuhan's project than media study that has something to do with his Catholicism, and he doesn't trust it. And so even by bringing up the fact of McLuhan's Catholicism, a lot of scholars will read that and be like, oh, okay, so now you know McLuhan is hashtag problematic. Right, of course. In fact, I remember once attending a talk where somebody is sort of wanted to mention McLuhan, but had to apologize a little bit. Of course, as we all know, he's very problematic because, uh, well, you you know, as if just being religious in any way is all on its own problematic. Of course, it's problematic in the high church of the modern, of which we academics are priests. But I wanna spend a little bit of time on that. Like, what would you say is the specific effect? What's the through line? What's the connection here?
0: I think that his philosophy is a philosophy of incarnation. Catholicism aside, he was a huge fan of Thiel de Chardin, who was also a Catholic, a Jesuit. I'll read a little part of the, maybe this will help us get in. Remember the bit where he's talking about electric light in the, uh, yes, yeah, I love that bit. So I'm not quite sure how, but I think that here you can see, we can find a path to that religiosity, that kind of central mysticism in, in McLuhan. He says the instance of the electric light may prove illuminating in this connection. The electric light is pure information. It is a medium without a message, as it were, unless it is used to spell out some verbal ad or name. This fact, characteristic of all media, means that the content of any medium is always another medium. The content of writing is speech, just as the written word is the content of print. And print is the content of the telegraph. If it is asked, what is the content of speech? It is necessary to say it is an actual process of thought, which is in itself nonverbal. That I find very interesting because he's nesting each medium inside another until you end up with speech but then the content of the medium of speech is thought, which is nonverbal. We're outside of language. So you can see how hidden within uh, McLuhan is a theory of logos incarnating itself, of something nonverbal, something completely outside coming in and shaping the world. And um, for me, as a Catholic myself, and as someone who's interested in magic and the esoteric, when I read McLuhan, I can't help but Realize that when he says that, he's giving us a very clear indication of the mysticism at the center of his philosophy. What he's talking about is that everything we see as history is actually the incarnation of spiritual Of of the spiritual.
1: I see what you're getting at. Because if... Yeah.
0: And and that's exactly... That's a Catholic vision. And like, let's, let's be calm here. When I say a Catholic vision, I'm not talking about a Roman Catholic vision specifically. Like very few practicing Catholics would have any clue what I'm saying here or would care either way. I'm talking about Catholicism as a particular instantiation of ancient religious thought. Okay. It's not something that you need to like, you know, kiss the Pope's feet to believe this stuff. This is magical through and through. Catholicism is a magical system. That's what it is. That's why it works. And so Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is that there's a a magical theory of incarnation at work in, in McLuhan and everything he's talking about is always, he's always talking about how the divine transforms itself into the world and how mm. the imminence of the divine in the world and how it manifests and how we as human beings have a responsibility to become aware of the divine so that we can see where things are going. Because when we live blindly and we, you know, we practice an idolatry of each instantiation of the divine thinking that it is the thing so worshipping the internet or worshipping television or thinking that now we finally understand what reason means because we've confused reason with language as he says it when part. This blindness we're in, that's the type of kind of golden calf idolatry that leads us astray. Whereas what we need is a kind of artistic or magical vision that calls us back to the background, the ultimate yeah. background, which is nonverbal and divine. And that's how we can learn to steer the ship as human beings. That's the only way the McLuhan, I think, would have said there is hope for humanity, is if humanity becomes aware of the background, which for me means, as I read McLuhan, means becoming aware of the divine. So that's that's how I read that, that little passage. I don't know what your thoughts are, but...
1: That's brilliant. Actually, that had not occurred to me, but that's brilliant. I really like that. Um, this reminds me of something, I don't know which edition of the understanding media you have. This is the one I have, the critical edition edited by Terrence Gordon.
0: The one you have is the one I've taken out of the library many times, but I never bought it. So I uh, was, uh, had no choice but to use the version that's... What? Oh, I'm looking at you and I'm expecting to see my book. <laughs> the version that's in my Essential McLuhan. So, the Essential McLuhan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: which is a good collection, as I recall.
0: It's great. It's all, I think it's all you need, really. <laughs> if you want to get, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of digression in McLuhan. I think oh, that yeah. if you read the, the, essential, is very true. the Essential McLuhan is actually a wonderful collection of everything you need. It's got the Playboy interview. It's got all the key bits. And I think if you read this, you're good, I think. You're gold. And, and then you can you yeah. can dig deeper from there uh, at
1: will, you know? As I recall, that's another one of Eric McLuhan's curatorships.
0: Uh, no, it's edited by... Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Eric McLuhan with uh, Frank Zingroni. Yes, it is. So he knew what yeah. he was doing. Yeah. It's yeah. very
1: good. In the critical edition, which I like, which for one thing, it has a tassel. And I'm a sucker for books with tassels. I love a good tassel. Yeah, me too. Uh in the critical edition, there's an appendix that details the critical reception of understanding media. And the one detail of it is that Charles Reich apparently misunderstood the medium is the message in his book, The Greeting of America. He apparently thought that McLuhan was saying simply that all media have no content. What he's saying about the electric light holds true for all media.
0: Well, And he, McL- yeah.
1: McLuhan tried to uh, write a letter to Reich to let him know that he was wrong, but McLuhan turned around and said, actually, now that you mention it, it's like this misunderstanding of his phrase, the medium is the message, actually opened up a new door for McLuhan. What were you gonna say a moment ago, though? I was
0: gonna say that it wasn't completely Reich's fault there because when he, the stencil quote that you read from Playboy would certainly lead one to believe that- seemed to suggest that, yes. (laughs) That's all, true, Yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely. McLuhan, however, he actually said, Rice's statement is actually one of the few useful remarks that has ever come to my attention about anything I've written. It enables me to see that the user of the electric light or a hammer or a language or a book is the content. Right. And and then when he says, this marks a turn towards saying what the meaning what the meaning of a medium is, not what its message is, but what its meaning is. And for McLuhan, that is relational. A medium is created, and then you know we make sense of it by using it, by exploring it, and as we do so, we make new what he calls environments. Yeah. Uh, which in turn become new media, and actually, social media would be an excellent example. Like the internet exists in the late 90s and the early aughts, and As users and entrepreneurs, engineers, inventors start fooling around with it, figuring out, like, what can you do with this? People start inventing things like the very early version of Facebook, which was originally just a way of, I think, of Harvard students to keep track of each other.
0: It was originally a way to rate girls, the girls on campus, to rate them in terms of how attractive they are. Have you seen the social network?
1: Why am I I not surprised? (laughs) No, I haven't. Um, uh, You can tell me that Mark Zuckerberg has retained his youthful good looks by bathing in the blood of the innocents and I would totally believe you. Um, But the reason I'm bringing this up is that what started interesting McLuhan is the process of interplay between human beings and technologies. And so he writes if the meaning is the process of interplay between us and a technology the effect or message results from the projection of this interplay between us and the media to say therefore that the medium is the message is to coalesce these stages a bit in other words what he's talking about is process yeah. and you know and talking about how you know one of his fundamental insights is as we said right at the beginning one medium as it's obsolesce becomes the content of another medium so film becomes the content of television and you know the late show you can watch old cowboy movies and so on and suddenly you become really aware of movies as movies right it becomes legible as content and the total environment of film the fact that you know in the old days in the you know in the great depression you could go see a double feature for a nickel and all of a sudden when people are watching old movies on the late show They remember how film is not just a medium, but a whole environment, a thing that affects the ways that we relate to one another. All of that becomes visible as that medium is framed or embraced or comprised by the new medium, which is invisible, we, you know, TVs is. I mean, you know that your TV is on. A TV is not invisible in that sense, but you're not aware of the way that the TV is just like the old medium. It's now encapsulating the film. It too is creating an environment, but we don't see the environment yet. The new medium creates a kind of invisible yeah. environment.
0: You don't realize that television. Uh, for television is a great example because it 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 was a huge shift. For society, because before we had television, we had fire, right? So, that's that's the kind of almost a cliche we went from staring at, at a fire all night to watching TV all night. But also, right. television is a colonization of night space and of dream space. When you put a television in your bedroom, you're basically inviting a new dreamscape into your bedroom, right? You stay up longer, you end up dreaming, you've ever those hypnagogic. When you play like yeah. a video game and then you go to bed and all you can see is the the graphics of the video game over and over again. Yeah. It starts to yeah. colonize your internal space. So dream life and nightlife and family life are all altered by television. It's completely changing, but you're not aware of the change. You're all of a right. sudden everything's different. And it's yeah. it's main, the difference is maintained by the television, but you're not aware of it. And a perfect right. Glimpse at that, that we all got at least we who live on the eastern seaboard of North America was the famous blackout 2002, where everything went out, and all of a sudden, the environment was instantly transformed because the screens were gone. And all of a sudden, it was like, wow! And then there were campfires out in people's backyards, there were uh, people making music on the street. I remember in Toronto, it was a pretty magical two days. And yet, and then everything went right back. Well, Mm -hmm. if you wanted a a kind of scientific verification of McLuhan's theories, we got it there. We saw immediately how the um, elimination of the media completely transforms the environment, which means that it's- it's, 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 Yeah,
1: yeah. Go on. I just had a thought. It's really interesting what you just said, invoking a kind of disaster or something like a disaster, an act of God, some kind of large scale mischance. Yeah. Yeah. Remember what I was saying at the beginning of this conversation about how once all the uh, rational administration Mm -hmm. of everyday life has been driven indoors, the poetry can come back into the streets. Um, There is a relationship between the act of God, let's say, and poetry, right? Right. And what you're just describing is how an act of God, a blackout, allows the invisible environment to become perceptible. Yes. And in so doing, it becomes poetic. Those things are related. And I was just sort of thinking about how one of the fundamental assertions that McLuhan makes, both in this chapter, the medium is the message, and throughout his work is this idea of what art is about. Artists create what he calls anti or counter environments. So his point is, okay, so the environment of a fresh medium is invisible, but the artist is a special sort of person who is actually on some level intuitively able to grasp that environment and to create a a counter environment or an anti environment that allows that environment to become palpable, that you can see it. Yeah. And I think he was thinking of like 60s avant-garde John K. sort of art, you know, like... Uh environmental art or environmental theater where people are enacting a process like, for example, setting up a fake draft induction center as a work of theater. People did a lot of that kind of shit in the 60s. I don't know if that's what he was thinking of. Maybe. Maybe he wasn't, but I always think of that as a pretty good example because what you do is you set up a, as a theater piece, an example of something that people just take for granted. Like, yeah, of course there are draft induction centers. They're all over the fucking place in the late 60s during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then you can kind of see the background when an artist sets up something like that. You're not caught up, like somebody who's being drafted is totally caught up in the business of like their paperwork and how am I going to get out of this if they don't want to serve and blah, blah, blah. They're dealing with the level of content, Mm -hmm. right? But the background is how is a draft center operating in society? How does the draft itself create an environment that young people in the late 1960s are living within? I can give you one example of how this created an environment, started a spiraling pattern of grade inflation because young men would get draft deferrals to avoid serving the draft. One of the ways you could get a deferral was to go into graduate school. mm mm-hmm. And it also created a gigantic boom in graduate school education, a huge boom. And we're living with the consequences of that still. But also, you know, if you were grading somebody, some young man comes in with a shitty paper and you want to fail him. Your failing him might result in him getting kicked out of the program. He getting kicked out of the program might mean he's drafted and he's off to numb. And so, like, you give somebody a bad grade, you might be killing that guy. Right. So you're not going to be so apt to give him a bad grade, right? But all of this kind of shit, that's the environment. That's the invisible background. And the point is that something like, you know, a radical environmental theater company, like uh, the Living Theater or something, you know, they are able to create counter-environments that allow the invisible environment to show up for what it is. From this point of view, art is a technology for allowing fish to understand that they're wet.
0: Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Beautifully said. I think that that type of modern art, is it's particularly easy to see how it's doing that, but McLuhan's examples often come from, like, Moby Dick and Shakespeare.
1: Um, yeah, no, where, it's true. Where,
0: like, a great example is that play within a play in Hamlet, right? So Hamlet sets up a play to basically depict his theory about what happened at Elsinore. But Hamlet's not watching the play. He's watching his uncle and his mother's reaction to the play. So that the play is bringing out what is being kept Uh, secret. The the play is bringing out the the background. You can look at Shakespeare's, you know, his, uh, what do they call the, the, uh, the plays that are about Kings, the historical plays. You can see them as attempts by Shakespeare to bring out the background of his time. It's hard to read a lot of Shakespeare and not think that he was some kind of magician trying to make something happen. He actually depicts himself as a magician in The Tempest, and he pretty much makes it clear there that the magician's role is to bring the past into the present. And what happened a long time ago is still active now, but we're not aware of it anymore. So we need to bring it back into the present and so his plays can be seen as workings to try to do that so in a sense it's not just modern art that does this all art has always done this art is not for McLuhan I don't think art is properly speaking a technology because it's a technology that's aware of itself as a technology and therefore it has one foot in nature all the time there's a clear dichotomy of nature and culture in McLuhan I think that's important to keep Mm. in mind.
1: As often happens with me, um, I kind of left a thought hanging about 10 minutes ago, and I want to return to it because I want to return to the really excellent insight that you had about what all of this seems to be about as incarnation. Right. So I was talking about this late shift or later shift in McLuhan's thought, which he characterized when he was talking to Peter Newman, who was a a Canadian journalist, uh, quote, the user is always the content of any medium. He creates the meaning by gradually discovering the potential of the medium of which he is the content. This is just as true of language as of a house or a car. The meaning is the interplay. We make sense by gradually focusing and exploring the various media that surround us, but in making sense, we also make new service slash disservice environments, which in turn become new media if the meaning is the process of interplay between us and a technology, the effect or message results from the projection of this interplay between us and the media. To say, therefore, that the medium is the message is to coalesce these stages a bit. And so what I take him to be saying there is that the medium is the message is a shorthand phrase to describe a dynamic process by which the background becomes foreground. Yes. By which the invisible environment becomes a tangible medium by which the background becomes the content of something new. And this is a dynamic process. And it's the relationship between those stages, the relationship between human beings, both among themselves and between these dynamically unfolding media, that is the meaning of of the medium. And this to me is like another way of saying kind of what you were saying. Absolutely. Like incarnation.
0: It's about ultimately what he's, what I love about that particular quote, which is kind of where it all, he brings it all home there. It's that you, if you are the content, this is finally bringing the thin end of the wedge into his theory, because McLuhan is a super thick end of the wedge thinker. The thickest of wedges. yeah, The the thickest of ends of wedges. (laughs) Uh, He, What he's saying is that media, in the largest sense, is a kind of crucible in which the individual transforms him or herself into something new. And so when you say the process of the background coming to the fore, that happens in the individual consciousness his, yes, his emphasis exactly. his emphasis on artists is the individualism in McLuhan. He keeps bringing it back. It kind of haunts everything. It's the artists that know. It's the artists that are doing it. It's not that artistic collective. It's not Hollywood en masse. It's individual artists. People yes. who realize that the relationship is one of macrocosm, microcosm, where the mm-hmm. media is the unfolding, a kind of ex- an externalization of our nervous system. And by engaging with it, we can transform ourselves. What in Greek Orthodoxy is called theosis, becoming God. And then you can see like all these links with Henry Bergson, who's who basically said the universe is a machine for making gods. I think that you could easily fit that into McLuhan's cosmic vision. I think McLuhan is a cosmic thinker. Oh, uh, absolutely. I, I, every, every bit as much as Bergson and Teilhard de Chaldein Lovecraft and
1: yeah. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I would hope that people listening to this aren't thinking, well, Martel's making a pretty good argument for him as a specifically Catholic thinker, but I'm not Catholic, so not so interesting to me. If you ask me, McLuhan is, as you just described him, Because the kind of fish that he's frying here, this is some fucking perennial tradition shit. This is one of those things that I feel is expressed in hermeticism. And the specific reason I wanted to do this show is because I was meditating recently. I've been meditating a lot more lately. Um, hmm, I wonder why. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it is a good way of dealing with stress. Yeah. You know, in the Zen tradition, we're like, oh, it's not good for anything. You're not meditating in order to deal with stress. But then I noticed that in times like this, all of my Zen friends are totally meditating because they're stressed out. Anyway, leaving that aside, I was meditating and I was thinking, or I wasn't thinking, I was doing that kind of meditation thing where at least I'm talking about Zazen, Zen meditation, but I think Theravadin meditation is very similar in this respect. Anything that is called insight... Meditation, wherein you are focusing on the nature of your experience. So, like, you know, if you try to sit still and breathe and just sit. You'll notice instantly that your mind is spinning really fast. and You're having all these thoughts. You're constantly kind of wandering off and think about something or other. And then you have to return to the breath and, you know, fix your posture and so on. That's the classic experience people have having meditation. But the point is, if you do it long enough, uh, if you stick with it, eventually your mind will start to quiet down and you won't be quite so caught up in content. You know, what she said in that meeting or what am I going to do tomorrow about this problem and blah, blah, blah. That's all content. Content. That's like all the shit that's coming into your email inbox. But what you're doing in any kind of insight meditation is you are learning how to move from that foreground to the background. Yeah. And the background is the point at which things achieve a kind of integral harmony, a kind of coming together Mm -hmm. a consistency. And I realized when I got off the cushion, I'm like, that is what McLuhan was talking about all along. I can give you an example. This is one of my favorite passages in McLuhan. So he says, just before an airplane breaks the sound barrier, sound waves become visible on the wings of the plane. I'll point out, in passing, McLuhan says a lot of things and some of those sort of facts that appear in this book turn out to be bullshit. I don't know if it's actually true that sound waves become visible at the wings and planes as they're breaking the sound barrier. But even if it's not true, what a beautiful poetic image. Right. Um, McLuhan is one of those thinkers who it is best to read him as if you were a poet. Then you are not going to be so hung up on the many little inaccuracies in his text. Anyway, to continue... The sudden visibility of sound just as sound ends is an apt instance of that great pattern of being that reveals new and opposite forms just as earlier forms reach their peak performance. And what he's talking about here is an anti a reversal, one of the four laws of media. Um... Mechanization was never so vividly fragmented or sequential as in the birth of the movies, the moment that translated us beyond mechanism into the world of growth and organic interrelation. The movie, by sheer speeding up the mechanical, carried us from the world of sequence and connections into the world of creative configuration and structure. Now, it's the phrase creative configuration and structure there that until recently, I didn't really understand what he meant, but what he means is that integrity of things, that coming together, that sense of the wholeness of the background that informs and articulates the individual pieced out particularities of the foreground.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Film is a perfect example of that. In fact, his insight there is the central thesis of Deleuze's theory of cinema. Because Deleuze is working from Bergson in the cinema books, and Bergson famously criticized Cinema as a kind of false mechanical way of seeing time. He's like, these are all static images, which, when you put them one beside the other and you make them, you know, you, you kind of like spin them really fast, it looks like movement, and that's our yeah. false idea of time. It's these static slices that you line up, and he's like, that's how we have to get out of that into pure duration, right? Durée is as, right. as Briggs calls it, but Derrida was like, that's true, but that's not what a film is. When I'm watching a movie, I don't see static images. I see pure movement. And so the ultimate... And that's... uh, I'm seeing durée. I'm seeing time as it happens. I'm seeing the background that the machines were occluding, it's coming out at me from the ultimate machine,
1: which is the film film machine, you know? Yeah, you have 24 frames per second, and that pushes segmentation, a kind of analytical segmentation of the image into little specialized bits, pushes it so far that, just like how sound becomes visible when, when the airplane is breaking the sound barrier, likewise, segmentation, Uh, linear segmented perspectival space reverses into all-at-onceness.
0: All-at-once, or what um, Gebser would call diaphony, which is a beautiful word. Yes, that's right. A kind of diaphanous self-revelation of being in itself, which is what Deleuze is trying to get at with his cinema books. And uh, and again, there you can see the cosmic in McLuhan and how he's giving
1: us a kind of like
0: really kind of profound spiritual
1: vision of things. And the example he gives is very interesting. Again, as you say, he doesn't tend to talk about contemporary art. He talks about older art. And here he talks about cubism. Right. And this is maybe my favorite line in this entire chapter. So he talks about cubism seeking to give us multiple perspectives on the object all at the same time. Mm -hmm. He writes, cubism, by giving us the inside and outside, the top, bottom, back, and front, and the rest in two dimensions, drops the illusion of perspective in favor of instant sensory awareness of the whole. Cubism, by seizing on instant total awareness, suddenly announced that the medium is the message. Correct. And right there. That's weird. I just brought up Gebser because Gebser specifically
0: singles out cubism as the advent of the what he calls the a in our modern yeah. perspectival world. The moment where we start to see diaphanously through things to the pervasive yeah. background, to what the Buddhists call Dharmakaya, I believe, right? The kind of like, the Tibetans have a beautiful way of putting it. It's like the, I can't remember what they call it, the pure blue sky of mind. That kind of like all pervasive background that's always just, There, behind Hmm. the uh, contingent artifice of becoming, you know?
1: I bet you didn't know this. I bet I never told you this, but that's my Dharma name. Dharmakaya? No, uh, it's uh, Japanese daiku, which means great sky or great emptiness. (laughs) Ku having both meanings, but basically, yeah, my Dharma name, which... It's like your initiation name when you uh, take Jukai, when you take the precepts in the Zen tradition, you're given a name. Yeah. So that basically is like, uh, well, you know what you just said.
0: Right. Wow. Um, Amazing. So there you go. So anybody who is afraid I'm, I'm like proselytizing for the Pope here. I'm
1: proselytizing for Zen, so it all balances out. It all, balances, it, it all out, right? balances
0: out. And this is one thing I wanted to, I've, I've had my fingers crossed for like an hour now because I wanted to bring this into the conversation. We were talking about the non-linear, non-linearity of McLuhan's concept of history. That, for example, in a hundred years, we might be riding horses and not flying hover cars. You know? Yeah, exactly. We don't know what can be retrieved by the new media that are coming. We don't know how the overheating and the collapse of a media, how that might affect the potentialities of the future. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also an ahistoricism of McLuhan that I really like, and which makes him very problematic if you drank the the modern Kool-Aid, uh, right. whether it's in
1: academia I or mean, elsewhere. Basically, if you're, an ac- yeah, if you're an academic humanist, you almost certainly have drunk that Kool-Aid.
0: Yeah, and yet you can still be a... Diehard McLuhanite, but when you think of what McLuhan's saying about the nervous system and the body, things get a little weird. So for McLuhan, technology, this is probably something we should have brought up earlier, but it wasn't important till now, I guess. Yeah, whatever. Technologies are extensions of the human nervous system, okay? Of the human sensorium. So each technology extends, enhances, or uh, rescales some kind of... um, Uh, um,
1: Some perceptual uh, channel Some
0: perceptual channel, some kind of sensibilia Something about the human nervous system The human nervous system in McLuhan, if you were to give it a place Would occupy precisely the spot that the human being occupies in a magical universe As the distillation of the entire cosmic process There's a centrality of the human in McLuhan There's a centrality of the human nervous system And as it relates to the universe through technology, which I think is really hard to account for while maintaining a strict kind of like secular Darwinian vision of how human bodies came into being. Human bodies have a kind of essence for McLuhan. And the reason why it's possible that we ride horses in 100 years instead of riding in hover cars and spaceships is because While all these technologies and media are coming and going, are arising and and collapsing, the human nervous system remains stable. It's the same. Therefore, the potentialities that were actualized in ancient Greece or in medieval China or in the Amazon 300 years ago, uh, all these potentials are manifestations of this thing that we are as human beings, of this creature, this being that we are as human beings. None of them is better. You can't put them in a hierarchy. The only hierarchies that can apply to these different, let's say, historical stages or different manifestations of the human, the hierarchy is in itself just a vestige of a particular narcissistic engagement with one or the other media. Right, right. In the ultimate sense, the entire story of humanity Nay, the entire story of the universe is an expression of this microcosmic being that is the human, and um, Mm. this is this is of course this is really impossible to swallow if you if you drank the the humanist Kool Aid, ironically the humanist Kool Aid, Um, (laughs) and that might sound really anthropocentric, but I don't think it is because it's only anthropocentric once you have reified the human within. The universe. Yes. If you That's let right. the human be what it is, which is an absolute and complete mystery, you could call it consciousness, you could call it mind, you could call it logos, you could call it all kinds of things, then the non human nature of this process comes to the fore. Any iteration or attempt to understand the human is in itself a vestige of some form of media narcissism. To get mm. to the real awareness of the real background, you need to enter into this poetic space of play where all of a sudden you see that you see that every medium is equivalent to electric light in that it has no essential content it is just pure becoming in itself, and that the, the, the uh, so man it 's hard to express this thought, but maybe that 's where i 'll end it that there is no way to separate out to split the medium from the message because this weird trip we're on is in itself the thing, the message.
1: (laughs) One way of thinking about McLuhan's idea of, um, well, he calls them sense ratios. The idea is that you have, you know, your sense of sight, your sense of smell, your sense of taste, your sense of touch, your sense of hearing. And uh, just as you said, there's no inherent privilege of one over the other. It's not like we are wired to be more ocular centric, you know, more vision centric than we are oriented to the auditory. It is our technological extensions, the things that extend our senses, like you know, recorded sound, for example, would be an extension of the ear. The book is an extension of the eye. And actually, it's that opposition between ear and eye that's the central one for McLuhan. But you know, he would say, neither sense is inherently weighted more. But the big event that he wants to think about is the invention of the printing press. And to a lesser degree, the invention of alphabetic literacy several thousand years earlier. Here he is taking his ideas from what's called the Toronto School. It's Walter Ong and a guy named Eric Havelock who wrote a really outstanding book called Preface to Plato. You know, Havelock's basic contention is that the creation of alphabetic literacy fundamentally changed Greek society. And that you can understand Plato, and particularly the Republic, as somebody who is one of the first generations brought up within the invisible environment of literacy. Yeah. And looking back at the now obsolescent technology of orality, oral transmission, with a shudder. Because this very often happens, that the new technology makes the old technology, or the new medium makes the old medium look not only obsolete, but positively wrong. And Havelock's argument is that a lot of Plato's peculiar insistence on, for example, his dislike of mimesis, that this has to do with the trauma of a transition from an oral world into a literate world. And McLuhan sort of ran with this idea. And his basic assertion is, look, once we start writing things, and especially once we start printing, because printing creates a kind of a, a mass manufacture of writing.
0: Well, it creates the need for mass literacy, which which rewires everybody's brain instead of just a small little group of
1: people. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, one of the things that McLuhan points out is that Plato is the first person to come up with what he calls classified wisdom, as opposed to what he calls the operational wisdom of uh, Homer. And then he says, you know, education by classified data becomes the basis of education in the West for uh, 2500 years afterwards right and his argument is that we have an environment created by literacy where everything becomes about the eye and the ratio of power between the auditory and the ocular becomes, drastically imbalanced in favor of the eye. And he says, well, what are the qualities of the eye? The eye takes things in one at a time. The eye moves in some linear sequence over the various objects in its field of perception. The eye has eyelids. You can choose to close your eyes to create a separation between yourself and the outside world. The ear, on the other hand, doesn't allow us to do that. We don't have ear lids. And so we are always already immersed in an auditory world. And his idea is that the world of Homer is a world of the auditory. And in a world before literacy, sense ratios skew much more towards the ear than the eye. His argument is that literacy and then print literacy creates a society-wide bias towards the eye and things that the eye does well, which is to segment, to classify, to sort... And his argument is that basically modern industrial society is a society created by a set of ocular centric priorities. And his argument about electric media was that that was undoing all of that in like a generation that suddenly, even though we continue to be literate, we can still read and write. That electric media cause us to inhabit a newly constituted version of the auditory space of the pre-literate Greeks. Walter Ong called this literate orality. Or sometimes I think McLuhan calls it secondary orality, an orality that bursts anew within literacy, which, by the way, is another great example of an anteodromia or reversal. So that's by way of explaining this idea of sense ratios, which is an important qualifier of this idea of the medium is the message. The medium is that which extends the sense and the environment created by media is basically the adjustment of sense ratios, but there's a lot going on there to do with the specific historical arguments he's making about a shift from a auditory to a visual bias and all of the attendant changes in society that come from that. No,
0: I, I totally agree. The only thing I would challenge in there is identifying Plato as the kind of fulcrum or moment of that change, because what happened with Plato is that he had a very strong emphasis on oral teaching. But he died and his text didn't. But then afterwards, the texts became very, very important with the Neoplatonists and all those guys. And I think, mm. I think maybe the switch was still just nascent with Plato, but he did write those down, you know, and that means something.
1: Yeah, uh, Pythagoras
0: yeah. didn't write anything down he lived mm-hmm. by his word that you couldn't write shit down but plato <laughs> might have said that but he not only does he write down but in the republic he makes the, his famous uh, simile of the sun is all about how the eye is the ultimate sense that sight is the most important sense he explicitly says that and then from there builds his theory of like the intellect as the true light of of basically comparing mind to a light or consciousness to light. But mm. um, noose, as they call it, to light. But the switch happened. And that's an exa- a perfect example of, like you said, of the medium is the message. And what happens is that In our, he calls it, in our narcissism, which sounds harsher than it should, all it means is that we're caught in this one medium or this one set of media, and we can only see the world on those terms. Uh, We do that because we're getting something from it. So it pays to have a literate ocular society. It results in massive changes, many of which are for the better. However, the thing about McLuhan is because he's non-historical, He thinks that for every movement forward we make, every progressive step we make, we, yes, we illuminate new areas of reality, but that light occludes or throws into shadow vast areas areas outside of it, outside our field of vision. So there is no real progress in McLuhan. We're just exchanging one type of sight for another type of blindness. And for everything we see, we can't see something else. Unless we as individuals, by becoming aware of the background, return to that state where we can see the whole thing. Because if you take McLuhan at his word, he might seem to be contradicting himself. Because if he says the medium is the message, well, that in itself is a message, and we're, that's not—we're not supposed to take that as another example of what he's saying. We're supposed to see that that he has come upon a truth, a real yes. bit
1: of content, and we have to find that truth for ourselves by working through it. Which is why I call it a koan, because Ex- that's what you do in koan study.
0: Exactly, it is a koan because it's calling you back to yourself, and it's calling you back to your own transformation, your that's own right. act of becoming, and your own connection with whatever you want to call it, call it God, Dharmakaya, Daiku, Phil Ford, call it what you will. (laughs) But that's what it's, that's what it's connecting you to. And that's what he's, I think that's what ultimately he's all about. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.